Well, let's read together from Isaiah chapter 5. You'll find it on page 569 in the church Bible. Page 569, the church Bible, Isaiah chapter 5. Let's hear the word of God. Let me sing for my beloved a love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The men of Judah are its pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, and behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. <clears throat> it's easy to throw stones at the world, whether the world is in the shape of its politics or its uh, economics or its culture or its social values. And we Christians enjoy doing that because it takes the attention of us. And yet when we come to the prophets of Scripture, when we read New Testament prophets like James, for example, or we read these Old Testament prophets like Isaiah, they invariably concentrate their fire not on the nations roundabout, in other words, not the world as we think of it today, but they focus their fire on the church or on the people of God. Some of what Isaiah has to say here in his prophecy, of course, has direct relevance to the historical situation that he's addressing, the people of his day. Uh, much of what he has to say addresses the flow of the Bible story in, pre in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. But throughout his writing, we find principles enunciated that apply to the people of God in whatever era they find themselves, whether in the era of the church as a nation state, Israel back then, or in the era of the church today, which is a holy nation made up of men and women from every background and nation and language and so on. Because what we discover as we read the prophets is that if we want God's name to be hallowed, and if we want God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, then judgment has to begin at the house of God. It is a remarkable thing to people who may be here this morning who are investigating Christianity to discover that as Christian people submitting themselves to the Word of God, we talk more to ourselves than we talk to you. We talk more to ourselves because we have this enormous privilege, this enormous privilege of hearing the very Word of God 
read in our hearing. We have this enormous responsibility of what we do with this. This word will either bring us salvation or will bring us condemnation. This word will either be a fragrance of life or the smell of death, depending on how we respond to it. It's a very serious business that we do as we gather under the Word of God. And as we read this passage, for example, and as we read the book of Isaiah, we're discovering that most of us as Christian people, believing people, most of us underestimate the scope of the work that God wants to do in us and in our church and in the churches of God. We celebrate, of course, the amazing kindness of God in the grace that He's shown us in Christ Jesus. We, we rejoice in that. We revel in that. We delight in that. We're grateful for that. And that's a good thing. But if we receive the grace of God, and if we enjoy the kindness of God, and it doesn't begin to change us and transform us and renew us, then we've received that grace in vain. The prophet Isaiah was a versatile communicator. And on this occasion, he composes a song. The scholars hail it for its artistry and note how carefully key words and phrases are balanced and held in tension in order to create a mood and to get the attention of the audience and make them think. The prophet himself begins by singing about his friend. Let me sing for my beloved, he says. I wonder when he starts that first line, whether they think they're, the people who hear it for the first time, whether they think they're about to get a love song. Perhaps the prophet has given up his prophetic work for a while and he's began to say, sing a, a pop song to be aired on the radio. A little love song for his beloved. I mean, it, it sounds as if that's the way it's going to go. But we're, we're very quickly disabused of that. In verses uh, 3 to 4, Suddenly we hear the friend that he's talking about. We hear his friend, his beloved, speaking to us. And then in verses 5 and 6, he introduces his friend more formally. We hear more about this friend. And it culminates by describing exactly who the friend is, what the friend's vineyard is, and what the vineyard represents. Now interestingly, we see in all of this the, the work of a prophet. We see the business of what Isaiah is, the job that he's in. The job that he's in is speaking the words of God. He, he speaks, then God speaks. And, and in a sense, that is the paradigm. That is paradigmatic of all ministry, of the ministry of the Word of God, even today. God has spoken, but God speaks wherever His Word is open, wherever His voice is heard. God is speaking to us this morning in this room. You may be hearing it through a human voice, but in a moment you must forget the human voice and hear the Word of God. Isaiah is teaching us how that works. And I want you to notice that Isaiah is a man who knows God. Do you notice? He's a man who knows God. And he uses familiar, intimate, unusually intense language to describe God. We know he's talking about God. Those who first hear it don't know that till later in the song. But you notice the language he's using here about God. My beloved, he calls him. Uh, using this language sets us 
up for the accusation that's going to come later. Because of all the prophets of Israel, none has such an exalted view of God as Isaiah does. He has the ability, the artistry, to describe in the most amazing terms the sheer size, the enormity of the majesty and the glory and the holiness of God. He describes how it is that God is exalted and is very high, that He transcends the heavens and the universe, that this God is great, this God is exalted, this God is high above the heavens. He's very high, very exalted, utterly holy, infinitely powerful. And yet it's this prophet who finds not only the greatness of God amazing, but he finds the God who is amazing to be adorable. To be adorable. This God who fills the universe delights to stoop down and draw near to the humble heart. And Isaiah loved him for it. Bernard of Clairvaux, one of our great fathers of the church, had a high view of the glory of God, and yet his treatises and his poems, which have more recently been made into hymns, dwell on his passionate affection for God. You see, there's a principle here. People who really know God are both in awe of Him and in love with Him. They are in awe of Him in His majesty. They are in love with Him for all that He means to them. Isaiah loved the Lord passionately. And what we understand as we read this chapter and see this that he places very early on in his ministry, even before the climatic event of chapter 6, is that it is this intimate, personal relationship with God that helps Isaiah feel what God feels. He feels passionately about things because God feels passionately about things. He senses in his experience of God the outrage that God feels against evil and error. He feels the grief that God feels over the sinfulness of his people. Nobody who knows God, in other words, can be cool and dispassionate when it comes to talking about the things that are important to God. That's crucial. And if our religion has become passionless, it's because we have lost our capacity to share God's passionate anger, His jealous love. And it becomes an indicator of how little we love Him and how little we know Him. These words stand at the opening of this song in order that we understand who it is with whom we have to do. Most of us in our Christian lives, in our thinking and feeling in the Christian life, stem from our low view of God. Our mistakes stem from our low view of God. Well, as we come to this, that theme of love is put before us as the theme of this entire song. Love's total commitment. Love's total disappointment. 
Love's total indictment. Look at love's total commitment. Here he is singing a song for his beloved and his beloved's vineyard. Or as I was corrected during the break, vineyard. The third party is never identified, though we know it's the prophet, and is irrelevant in many ways to the flow of the song. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. The prophet describes the painstaking labor of the farmer as he picks out the right spot to build his vineyard, as he clears the ground, as he carries away the rocks, as he uses those rocks to build a wall and keep out marauding animals, as he prepares the soil, as he plants the choicest vines, as he builds a watchtower to guard it, and a great vat in which to use the fruit to produce wine. And then as he waits, as he waits for the harvest, two years would pass. During those two years, he would strengthen the wall. He would finish off the vats. He would... uh, strengthen the watchtower, he would be constantly on the watch and on guard, looking after his vineyard. Waiting for the day the fruit would be produced that he could then use for its appointed end. The prophet's got our attention. The prophet now has our attention as we listen to him, as he describes the total commitment of love. In fact, later in verse 4, the key verse What more was there that I could do? What more could I do for the vineyard, God says? If we take that and and we think of the vineyard here as being a description of the people of God, as we shall see later, it is. And we apply it to ourselves. You can almost hear God looking at the church today. Look at this church and saying, what more could I do for them than I have done? What more could I give them than I have given them over all these years, over A century and a half in which that church has existed. Over 2,000 years in which the church of Jesus Christ has been on the earth. I bless them with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. In the language of Ephesians 1. I have given them, in the language of Peter's letter, I have given them everything they need for life and godliness in the knowledge of Him. Everything they need. I've given them everything they need. Love's total commitment is followed by love's total disappointment. Look at that. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. You can sense immediately the shock, the disbelief. After all this, nothing. In verse 3, there's a shift of speakers. Now it's the owner himself who is speaking in the first person. And he invites his hearers to give him some advice about the sorry state of his vineyard. Notice, inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do that I have not done? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? You see the mastery of the prophet's technique? He begins by telling us that he's going to sing a song about his best friend. Now his best friend speaks for himself. And he seeks judgment. He invites everybody to come in on the act. What would you do? Would you explain this to me? 
Would you tell me what it is I've done wrong or, or haven't done enough of? Or, or how could I change things? Or how could I redo that? We went to see a movie last night called About Time. It's a great feel-good movie, actually. I, I was sitting in the middle of that. One of these, uh, it's made by the people who made the movie Love Actually. It's got some bits that would, you, know, you shouldn't see unless you get my approval. But um, <laughs> to the pure, all things are pure. But there were moments in that movie where the tears were streaming down my face, and I was glad that nobody around me could see that they were streaming down my face. It was very moving because I'm a big girl after all. And anyway, <laughs> but what, what, one of the things that you could do, this guy could do in the movie is he could go back, he could revisit days in his life and fix things that had gone wrong. Isn't that great? That would be a great thing to do. There's an awful lot of days in my life that I'd have to go back to to fix everything that's wrong. And I've absolutely no idea what I was going to use that as an illustration of in the sermon. But, oh yes, this is it. God is saying, what could I go back and fix that would make it right? What could I do that would remake it, make it better? He's inviting us, he's inviting the people who are there to listen in. He addresses specifically the people of Jerusalem and Judah. He's already putting his foot in the door. He's already getting their attention. Look, this is about you. This is for you. This is for the people of God. Listen, adjudicate, help me, F figure this out. And you can, you can hear the people, you can almost hear them thinking to themselves, well, you need to get rid of it. You need to sell it on. You need to flip it and get, and get somebody else to buy it from you because... That's just ridiculous. And so love's total commitment and total disappointment is followed by love's total indictment. Here's the voice of the, of the owner, the beloved speaking. Now I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I'll break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I'll make it a wasteland. And it shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns. The paradisical, the paradisical garden will turn into a desert. Israel, the land flowing in milk and honey, will become burnt over ground. That's what he's saying. And God's saying, I'll do it. I'll do it. Not only that, he says, but I'll command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. The early church fathers, I was looking at them early this morning. They just turned up. And, uh, and I was reading some of their writings commenting on this. And they believe that the clouds that rain are, are the prophets who come with words that refresh the ground and refresh the land. And that this is a metaphor for the work of the prophets. It may very well be. The point is. That by this stage, the owner is perfectly justified in the action that he is about to take. He will withdraw his protection. He will no longer work on the garden and it will revert to wilderness. It will bring forth briars and thorns, an expression that Isaiah uses five more times to symbolize the the utter change that will come upon the land. The covenant curses that Moses spelt out in the law will come true. The devastation of the land, the absence of rain, and the unleashing of forces of nature against the land. I think of the language of Psalm 135, a hymn that's in our Trinity hymnal, I think. I know the Lord is high in state. 
Above all gods, our God is great. The Lord performs what he decrees in heaven and earth, in depths and seas. He makes the moisture to ascend in clouds from earth's remotest end. The lightnings flash at his command. He holds the cyclone in his hand. No doubt by this stage, Isaiah's audience are nodding their heads in agreement. He's doing the right thing. He's wasted his time. He should cut his losses and give up. But then with perfect timing, having gotten their attention, just when they're unaware, Isaiah delivers his punchline. Verse 7 is the key that unlocks and decodes the song for us. Look at verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. He drives home the application. He's talking about them. The Lord of hosts is the owner. Israel and Judah is his vineyard. The vineyard is Israel, the source of God's delight, the object of his desire. We can be even more exact, I think, in our identification because Israel is often described as, as, as the, the vehicle in which God is present through the temple. And in the uh, Aramaic Bible of early Judaism, the Targum, this vineyard is described or identified as Israel's sanctuary, the temple. This is how this version puts it. I built my sanctuary in their midst. And I even gave my altar to atone for their sins. And it goes on to say that as a result of Israel's sin, God would remove his glorious presence from the temple and break down the places of their sanctuaries. No matter how privileged Israel was, no matter how blessed Jerusalem was as the worship center of the people of God, it will not be security enough in the end. And what is God's charge? Do you notice the charge he states? He looked for justice and righteousness. Look at that. Justice, the righting of wrongs. That's what he was looking for. And righteousness, right living and right relationships. So when there's something wrong something evil, something full of error, it's put right. Justice. When something is righteous, it means right living and right relationships, keeping the law of God. But instead, he says, there was bloodshed. There it's a metaphor. It's the only time it's used in the Hebrew Bible. And, and it probably refers to the inflicting of wrongs. Instead of the righting of wrongs, there's the inflicting of wrongs. He looks for righteousness and instead he finds an outcry. An outcry. That word outcry represents the feeble protests of the victims within the church of God. 
You see, Isaiah is using covenantal language. He's talking to the people of God, which means, by extension, he's speaking to us today. And what he's saying is that God's anger is kindled by injustice and unrighteousness, but he puts it in very bold terms here. He puts it in the positive terms. It's not only injustice, it is the actual inflicting of wrong on others, the inflicting of injustice upon others within the covenant community, that is, within the church. It is the outcry from those within the covenant community, within the church, who have been marginalized or disenfranchised or are not being heard, whose cries to God have been ignored. I was discussing with Christian at breakfast this morning how to, how to get our heads around this whole idea of the outcry, the anguish of the oppressed. And she reminded me that over these 40 years or so that I've been a minister, we have come to know so many people, so many people, who have in their background some form of child abuse or spousal abuse, and who perhaps in later life, very often somewhere between the age of 30 and 45, this which has happened to them early on comes to the surface and devastates them, devastates them. The people we know were abused by people in the church. I think of a professional lady, a fine woman, who around about the age of 40 is flooded with guilt about what happened when she was in her teens, when an elder of the church took her regularly in some kind of ministry thing and raped her every Friday afternoon. And no one believed her. No one would listen to her. Everyone would ignore it. He was an elder. He had influence in the community. He was a well-known figure. No one would believe it. The cries of the oppressed were not heard. And what Isaiah is saying is, and that, by the way, those cries are coming from all over the place today. This is one of the great things the Church of Jesus Christ is discovering that the world recognized before we did. The children of this age are often wiser in their generation than the children of light are, Jesus said. And that's not the only area, of course. But the cries of the oppressed, let me tell you this, dear friend, Dear, abused, ignored, unheard friend, let me say to you, God hears your cries. And if those cries are not heard by the church, they are heard in heaven. And God has serious business with his church to do. And he has closed up churches for less than that. The cry, the outcry. Now, as we see, what God wants from his people is fruit. And the fruit is 
obedience. There are two things I want to say just as we wind this up. Because there are two dimensions as we look at this little poem that have a New Testament relationship. And to make it easy for you, I'm going to give you one word for each of these dimensions that will be very easy for you to remember. The first is that there is an eschatological dimension. And the second is that there is an ecclesiastical dimension or ecclesiological dimension. You can take your choose. Actually, the second one rhymes better. Those are the only two reasons. The only reason that I picked those two words is because they both start with E and they rhyme. Eschatological, ecclesiological, okay? One has to do with the latter days and one has to do with the church. That's all you need to remember, but you can also always go home and perhaps over dinner, lunch today, you can... Ask someone to define these words for you. Well, let's take the eschatological, the, the latter days. Jesus uses it. We just read today Matthew 21 in which Jesus' parable is based on this parable of the vineyard. There's a, a man who plants a vineyard. He sets a hedge around it. He digs a wine press. He builds a tower. But in that parable, as Jesus tells it, his focus is on the tenants, the, vin- the vine growers, the, the, the religious leaders. Did you notice at the end? Did you notice at the end of that reading? It's hilarious. After Jesus has told the parable, and we're getting the notes of the story that, that Matthew tells us, that the religious leaders who were hearing this figured out that Jesus was talking about them. Of course he did. Of course they did. He was talking about them, and the penny dropped. He was speaking about them, and. Uh, He accuses them in this parable, do you notice, of not listening to the vineyard owner as he sends his messengers, the prophets, the faithful stewards of his word who come uh, from the owner and, and, and ask for what the owner deserves because it's his vineyard. And in the end, they don't listen to the prophets. One after the other, they're chased away or they're killed even. And eventually the owner sends his Beloved son. Who was the beloved that Isaiah had gotten to know? The one that Isaiah had gotten to know, and who in chapter 6 would actually later be revealed to him in person, was none other than the beloved son. Jesus says, Isaiah saw my glory. And the beloved son comes to his own place. His own people don't receive him, but they crucify him. Here's the take home of the lesson for you and me. When having received the grace of God, when having received the word of God, We intentionally disobey that word or ignore that word. What are we doing? We are siding with those people who rejected the prophets, who rejected the beloved son, and who killed him. We are siding with those people, and we are, to use New Testament language, crucifying all over again the Son of God. When a believer disobeys, we are crucifying all over again, the Son of God. It is an awesome thing. But I said the parable also has an ecclesiological 
dimension. Because in John chapter 15, Jesus refers to this parable again. And he calls himself the vine. I am the true vine. In its context, chapter 12 of John's gospel, Jesus turns finally away from Israel. They've rejected him for the very last time. He turns from them. He departed and hid himself. He will no longer speak to them. He came to his own, his own place, his own people, did not receive him. He departs from them and hides from them. Chapter 13, verse 1, he comes to his own who are in the world. Chapter 15. He says to them, I am the true vine. What's he saying? He's saying, I am the true Israel. I'm the Israel who obeyed God. I'm the Israel who came into the world as the true and faithful Israel. I did what the Father wanted. I kept the law. In other words, those prophecies that, uh, about Israel becoming a fruitful vine forever are fulfilled in Jesus, who is the fruitful vine. He is the one who produces the fruit that brings glory to God. And Jesus says that now the Israel of God can be measured not by your genetic background, but by your relationship to the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. And in describing that, he describes two kinds of relationship. There is a formal and external relationship, and there is a vital and personal relationship. It's covenantal language. Just as in Israel there were those who were Israelites outwardly and those who were in Israelites inwardly. There are those who are outwardly Christian and those who are inwardly Christian with a vital relationship. And the key is the fruit bearing. It is the obedience. And Jesus says to these people, look, here's the test. You stand up and you recite the creed, but do you really know the God of the creed? You say that Jesus is Lord, but do you know the Lord that is Jesus for yourself? You are connected to Jesus, but are you communing with Jesus? You have a relationship exteriorly with Him, but have you an internal, personal relationship with Jesus? Is it real in you? And what is the test of that? Here it is. God chose Israel to do good works. God chooses you to do good works. Good works that we were chosen to walk in before the foundation of the world. This is a serious word. Some sermons are easier to prepare and easier to deliver than this one this morning, brothers and sisters. This is a serious word from God. It's a word that says the church of Jesus Christ should always be asking itself these questions. What is my relationship to Jesus? Is it merely an external attachment or is it an internal commitment? Have I an organic, vital, living relationship with Jesus? You say, how do I know that? Is he your beloved or not? What think ye of, John Newton wrote this, what think ye of Christ is the test to try or to evaluate or judge your state, the position you're in, and your creed, what you believe. You cannot be right in the rest until you think rightly of Him. As Jesus appears in your view as He is beloved or not, so God 
is disposed towards you, and mercy or wrath is your lot. Believing in Jesus is the first mark. And having believed in Jesus, the God who redeemed Israel out of Egypt by the blood of the Lamb and brought them straight to Sinai, did not bring them there to give them a ladder to heaven, but to give them a pattern for living. The God who brought you and I out of sin by His great redemption and who did so by the blood of the Lamb brings us to His Word and says, This Word is a lamp to your feet, a light to your path, as we've sung and had sung to us already this morning, and sends us out to obey. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that in Your enormous grace and mercy You would pardon our many sins. We pray for your church. We pray for this church. We pray for the church around the world, the church in America, and ask that you would make us, Lord, people who bring forth fruit, the fruit of obedience. However tough that obedience is, that we would do so to the glory of your name. We ask this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.